I am super grateful to see all of you guys here, um, here to have all you guys here this morning. And so um, hopefully you have uh, felt right at home. You've already had an opportunity this morning to meet a handful of those who are a part of uh, the day-in, day-out ministry here at Christ the King. Super grateful for those guys and for the Lord's grace and provision um, in continuing to bring people to celebrate the name of Jesus uh, with us. And so, uh, yeah, if this is your first time, welcome. I would love to get to catch up with you, get to know you a little bit more. Um, And so know that after we conclude our time this morning in God's Word and observe uh, the ordinance of communion together, uh, there will be opportunity for that. So make, make plans to hang around for just a moment. Uh, if you are new, I'd love, to, I'd love to meet you and talk to you maybe about uh, you know, where you are and, and who we are here at Christ the King. And um, Yeah, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to. So, um, hey, if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We are uh, continuing uh, our first study uh, as a uh, covenant body of believers here at Christ the King uh, through the gospel of Mark. We, uh, we have a mission statement, right? We have a reason that we exist, that we feel like God has called us to be a part of this city, to plant here in Carrollton, and that is to proclaim the word of God to the glory of God while seeking the good of our community. And we believe that the best way we can do that is by faithfully, week after week after week, um, <coughs> proclaiming uh, the gospel of Jesus, the coming of the kingdom, and God's um, calling of, of us, his people, into that community through the blood of Christ. And so, what a joy it is to every week go through, uh, to go through this gospel um, together. We're in an interesting uh, place in Mark's gospel. We're coming off of the hills of like this really big moment in Mark chapter 6 where we have seen Jesus rejected at Nazareth and then sending out the 12 apostles. We said last week that we're really kind of in the midst of this valley, right? Because we, we, we took it down right through the, the heartbreaking rejection of Christ uh, before his, his own uh, people there in his hometown. Um, and then we see Christ commissioning his apostles to go out and to teach and to preach. We'll be talking more about that uh, later on, uh, but then now this morning we're coming. We're coming into now in light of the rejection of Christ, the commissioning of and sending out of the apostles, and then uh, this morning coming into the death of John the Baptist. And so we've kind of discussed a handful of times over recent weeks, like what it means to be a follower of Christ, right? And how kind of we have this American mentality that following after Jesus just results in you know, the meeting of all of our desires and like, you know, like uh, if you would go as far as say health, wealth and prosperity. And what we see at this point in the gospel of Mark is that that's a lie. That's just a lie. It's just not, it's just not true. But what we are promised uh, in in the word of God and by uh, the gospel of Christ is that uh, we have Jesus, right? That, that is, that is the good news, right? That we have Christ, that we have uh, been reconciled and redeemed and ransomed from our sin against God and against people, right? And we've been called into this fellowship with him, right? And so uh, remember that as we go on through, because in light of the the horrific events that we're going to see yet again on display this morning as we look at the death of John the Baptist, next week we're going to see Jesus respond by lavishing grace upon 5,000 people, right, as he takes a little boy's Lunchable and feeds the masses with it, right? And so um, this is the response of Christ. Even as we're reading through this morning, like, let us remember where we are going. Um, And so this morning, though, we will be uh, looking at the only account in Mark that is not explicitly about Jesus, right? We're looking at uh, an account in Mark in which we see Um, The execution of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, both in his earthly ministry and in his death. John the Baptist, a guy who is referred to by Jesus as the greatest man who ever lived up until this time. And this story is a lot at one time, okay? It is uh, intense, and it is extremely saddening, and it's enlightening, and it is all of these things at one time. This is the story of the murder of the last of the Old Testament prophets. 
However, one of the most tragic parts about this story is that it is nothing new. Right? It's, it's nothing new. The people of God, called, adopted, privileged, were guilty of killing those whom God sent to them time after time after time. A reality that Jesus would vocalize and address when prior to his entrance into Jerusalem, he laments over the condition of the city. Right? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And one thing that we see in light of this passage is that the, the practice of killing the righteous would not stop with John the Baptist, but it would continue on to Christ and his followers who are called to take the message of the gospel following his resurrection from the dead and his Ascension, the murder of John the Baptist comes at the hands of a man named Herod. A man named Herod, one of four sons of Herod the Great, the ruling king at the time of the birth of Jesus, who decreed that all of the male infants be killed. Why? Well, because he felt this threat to his crown, right? From the proclamation, the announcement, announcement of becoming a Messiah. And then, so one thing that we learn about Herod within the context of Mark chapter 6 is that he comes from wicked lineage, while at the same time having a long history of succumbing to the temptation of the flesh himself, which we will see in this morning's passage. And so five things that we're presented in this passage with, and you guys are thinking, oh my gosh, we're going to be here all day. No, I promise, um, I promise we, we want five things that we are presented Within this passage, all of which, all of which inform the way that we make sense of and live within the world as followers of Christ here in 2017. Five things that we're going to see presented in this passage. Number one, a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience. Number two, a call to repentance. Number three, a distorted desire. Number four, a dangerous calling. And number five, an eternal hope. And so let's go to Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. This is the word of the Lord, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known and some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. What do we see going on here? Well, uh, this is in light of what we have seen taking place prior to this passage this morning, that being the commissioning of, the sending out of the 12 apostles to participate in the work of ministry. We'll address that later on, but as we kind of enter, you know, like come onto the runway here uh, in verse 14, it looks like we're, we're entering into a, a stream of thought that has already begun. So that's what we see going on. Some said that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miracles, these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly, verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. 
And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Hey, let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for time together again this morning to, uh, to, to worship Jesus and to uh, enjoy fellowship around your word. Um, we pray that this time would indeed be profitable, that it would be transformative, that our hearts uh, would be uh, convicted and encouraged, um, and that we might close our time in a position of great adoration and worship extended to you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So what is the first thing that we see on display within this passage? The timeline is is interesting, okay? And so hang with me as we work through because we're really seeing a recollection, a retelling of events that have already taken place. And so we're presented in verses 14 through 16, first, a guilty conscience. The guilty conscience of Herod to be exact in light of the multiplication of the ministry of Jesus through the sending out of the twelve, both with the authority of Jesus over unclean spirits and disease, as well as the message of the kingdom, we see that this incredible buzz has started about Jesus. Right? It's even at this point worked its way back to Herod, followed by this really strange attempt to process the information related to the person of Jesus. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus's name had become known. Why? Well, because these incredible works, these miraculous works have been following Jesus, right? Where Jesus is going, where his people are going, where his disciples are going, these works are following him. And we see this question that many have been asking throughout Mark, come to the surface again, and it centers on the source of the power and authority of Jesus. And we see three viable options among the people begin to be circulated. Who is Jesus? Well, the the first conclusion or option that is explored by the people is that he is John the Baptist resurrected which seems to indicate that they knew nothing of Jesus prior to his ministry in Galilee, as well as some degree of disconnect between the work of Jesus and the ministry of John. Why? Well, because they are attributing the miraculous works of Jesus to John, something that John never did. Right, And so perhaps there's this realization or this mindset that along with the resurrection comes such power But we see, if we step back and we consider yet again the person and work of Jesus, we know that this is not John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. This is one of the options being explored by the people, however, though. Another is that he is a prophet like the prophets of old. And the last is that he is Elijah. Now, John had spoken of Jesus as the coming one. But for those who knew the Old Testament, this could have been no one else but Elijah. So what conclusion does Herod himself arrive at in light of the person and work of Jesus? How are we explaining Jesus? How is Herod explaining Jesus? Well, well, Herod comes to the conclusion that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. That is, in the mind of Herod, the only possible Right, the only plausible explanation for the supernatural and miraculous works being done by him and his followers. Only we find out through this passage as we continue on that this conclusion is one that most likely flows not from an examination of the evidence, but in fact a guilty conscience. Let the cat out of the bag, right? What is Herod guilty of? What is he processing as he is confronted with the person and work of Jesus? Well, his evil extended towards John, 
right? And so Herod is dealing, he is, uh, how might we say, uh, paranoid, right? Extremely paranoid, right? In light of the guilt that he is, he is under as a result of his, of, his evil, of his evil deeds. He has a guilty conscience. And Mark is going to explain the reasons in depth for Herod's guilt in verses 17 through 28. But before we ever get there, there are a few things that we can say, that we can notice, that we can take note of concerning guilt and its impact on our conscience. Now, why is this important? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. But but number one, the first thing that we can learn about guilt is that guilt is most clear upon the backdrop of righteousness, What do we see in verse 14? We see that news of the righteous and powerful works of Jesus is going out amongst the people. And that leads Herod into this this exploration, explaining, right, the person of of Jesus and what all is going on with, with him. Herod has done something evil, and we see it explained through this passage. But John's death has already taken place as we see Herod processing who Jesus is. And as news spreads about Jesus, the guilt of his sin against God and John informs the way that he both sees and processes the current events. Right As news of the work of Jesus spreads, the oppressed being set free, Right, the sick being made well, the dead being raised to life, Herod begins to, for lack of a better term, freak out. Right? He's, he's, he's losing it. In light of, of the wickedness that he has been a part of against a man that he perceived in John to be holy. And here's what we want to say. Here's the realization, the reality we want to begin to embrace this morning. It is this, that it is upon the backdrop, this backdrop of holiness, the, the fame of the name of Jesus spreading throughout Galilee, holy and righteous, that clarity is experienced and the ugliness of sin is truly observable. Right? It's, it's upon this backdrop of the, of the spread of the news of Jesus, righteous and holy, right? powerful, authoritative, working, miraculous deeds amongst the people in which the sin, the guilt of Herod is most clearly displayed. The wicked King Herod, in hearing of the redeeming work of the King of Kings, Jesus, cannot escape his own sin. Why? Well, because Herod's actions are evil and his conscience will not be able to escape them. And so what do we learn first about guilt? Well, hey, guilt is most clearly uh, seen upon the backdrop of righteousness. In this case, Christ. Number two, guilt holds captive the mind. Herod's mind, his better thinking, his judgment is informed by the guilt that he is experiencing, right? We see them considering all of the options, the viable options that explain the power of Christ, and never once do they come to the consensus that this is indeed the Messiah, right? This is the Savior, right? This is, this is the King, right? This is the one who brings about the kingdom of God, who crushes the head of evil and restores his people. Why? Well, because his mind is, is clouded with guilt. The third thing we see about guilt is that guilt often gives way to fear. In the mind of Herod, a resurrected John the Baptist is a terrifying thing. Why? Well, because he has done something evil, right? And he, and he knows it. We see through this account that a rejection of the law of the Lord leads to a guilty conscience that holds captive the mind. This is an injustice, right? This is an evil act. This is not how God created us to exist in community and relationship with one another, right? This is, this is a, an atrocity of epic proportions. This, is, this would be headline news, right? This is headline news. And it's wicked, 
And it runs in contradiction to the character of the Lord. It's a rejection of the law of the Lord. And as a result, we see the conscience held captive. This informs the way that we understand the call of John that resulted in great hardship for himself. Consider that as we work our way, as we work our way through this passage. Not only do we see a guilty conscience, but we see from John a call to repentance. Look at with me at verses 17 through 20. Mark writes this, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. And then I love the way that Mark introduces these characters, right? He refused to acknowledge Herodias as Herod's wife. And that says a lot about the relationship that they are entered into together. He refers to her instead as as his brother Philip's wife. Why? Well, because he had married her. He had stolen her from Philip. They had entered into together this adulterous relationship. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, here's the deal. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Herodias did not appreciate this proclamation from John that centered in on the sin of her and Herod. Herod feared John, however. And so it prevented John earlier on from being killed, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, to say the least, right? Like, like the word of the Lord makes absolutely no sense to a closed mind, right? Like, I mean, it just doesn't. And so while he is, he is uh, you know, interested, right? He displays some interest in the things that John is saying, even as it addresses the sin of Herod and Herodias. His mind is incapable of comprehending all that that John has to say. In verse 17, we see the context surrounding John's imprisonment. In light of Leviticus 18, verse 16, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. Herod had taken his brother's wife for himself. And as a result of doing so, he has totally rejected the word of God as it relates to the marital relationship. And as a result, John publicly, this is, a, this is bold on behalf of John, okay? John is publicly addressing the relationship that Herod and Herodias have entered into together. He's referring to it as unlawful and calling them to turn from their sin, right, which is which is epitomized by this relationship that they are entered into with one another, and to turn back to the Lord. John's response is noteworthy. That is to say that, that the way that we understand the call to repentance is informed by what we see from John. Two observations that we can make about the call to repentance that we see within this passage. Number one, the call to repentance is inclusive. The call to repentance is inclusive, right? Regardless of position, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of lineage or tradition, the call to repent from sin and to turn back to God is one that is extended out before all of of creation. Why? Why are all people extended this call? Why is this expectation for repentance, turning from sin and turning back to the Lord, placed upon each and every one of us within this room and, and outside of these walls? Well, the reality is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is indeed death. Right? Punishment, God's wrath and eternal separation from him. And so we see this all-inclusive proclamation of repentance. John does not withhold the call from Herod or Herodias because of their position or power. He doesn't withhold the call to repentance because of their, their, monetary, uh, their monetary gains and the things that they are able to in this world purchase for themselves. Why? Well, because the one thing that they are incapable of doing in and of themselves is bringing themselves into right relationship with the Lord. And so thus this call is extended. 
right? From John the Baptist to Herod and Herodias, both publicly and then within this like small group setting that we are kind of seeing alluded to here in Mark chapter 6. Repent, turn from your sin and turn back to the Lord. In repentance, we see this need for the acknowledgement of the existence of sin, right? We've said it again and again and again as we've worked our way through Mark's gospel, approaching Christ in humility and light of this proclamation, this realization that we have rebelled from the Lord. This is the instruction. This is the information that's being relayed from John to Herod and Herodias at this point. Right, you guys are, are, are living in contrast and contradiction to the word of the Lord. Are we good so far? Are we together? Awesome. Let's continue on. We see not only the call to repentance being inclusive, but we see, and this is incredibly important, this informs the tone by which we read this passage and understand the heart of John behind the message. Right? Because it's a, it's a challenging, it's a difficult call, but we must understand that the call to repentance is ultimately a call to joy. Why? Well, because the guilty await upon themselves the judgment of the Lord. Separation from Him. God, however, in His steadfast love and kindness, has sent the Son to take our place as the object of His wrath and justice upon the cross. And so let us consider not only what one is called out of, but what one is called into. Right, The call to turn from sin and towards Christ is a call to the only one who can truly satisfy and fulfill us. It changes the way that we understand the heart of John behind this message. It is bold, but it is not cold. Right? Like, let's, let's understand that. Let's remember that. That the call to repentance is an extension of joy. Come and find joy in Christ. That is what the call of repentance is. Turn from these things that are incapable of bringing satisfaction into your heart and into your life and turn instead to Christ. John's message is, is one that continues to ripple through our culture and context to thousand years later and the message is this that sin does not lead us into the peace and contentment of the lord right that the longings of the flesh are incapable of satisfying us that the satisfaction that they produce is indeed unsustainable and so flee from these things Right, see the goodness and the glory of Christ and flee from sin. Dude, I am convinced of this. Okay, y'all ready for this? I'm convinced of this, that we cannot truly kill the sin that exists in our life until we place ourselves in a posture of adoration before Christ. We have to see him as eternally good before we will turn from anything in this world that temporarily pleases our flesh. And so as we're sitting here this morning and you're thinking of like the handful of struggles that you are undoubtedly experiencing, the sin that continues to reap its ugly head in your life, how ought you respond? Man, gaze upon the glory of Christ. Gaze upon the glory of Christ I look to the sacrifice of Christ that we might be adopted into, into the family of, of God. We see John here through this extension of this call to repentance, a gift of grace. The call to repentance is a gift of grace. We see John calling out against their rebellion and standing boldly in the face of opposition and through it all, trusting the sovereign power of the Lord, calling out against mighty Herod. Not only do we see a guilty conscience and a call to repentance displayed within this passage, but we see a, a distorted desire, a distorted Desire, Despite the hard message of John towards Herod and Herodias, Herod had kept John safe, and he had done so out of fear. What we see in verses 21 through 27, however, is the distorted desire of Herod's heart. Read with me, beginning in verse 21. But an opportunity came 
Herodias has serious beef directed towards John. She hasn't received the news the same way that Herod has. She's not processing it the same way. She is not intrigued or interested or receiving this news gladly. But instead, now seeing the opportunity on Herod's birthday, in which this massive party, verse 21, is being thrown for all the military commanders and leading men of Galilee, Herodias sends her daughter right, to, to dance before Herod and, and his guests. And as she danced, we see that Herod and his guests, verse 22, are pleased. And the king says to the girl, Man, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. Now, what do we see Herod doing here? Like, Herod is, uh, Herod is, is gloating, right? He, he's, he's presenting his, his pride. His pride is on display here. Hey, like, I've got plenty of kingdom. Right? Like, I got plenty under my control. Like, whatever you ask for, up to half of my kingdom, he's elbowing his buddies beside him. Like, can you believe this? I will give you. The flesh is weak. Right? The flesh is weak. And we see that displayed in this passage from Herod. And this really disturbing scene involving Herodias' daughter, Herod, and his friends. So how does the daughter respond? Verse 24, And she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? Here it is, right? This is what I've been waiting for. The trap has been set, and Herod has fallen into it. Herodias said, the head of John the Baptist. Verse 25, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, and let's not excuse the evil of the daughter here, right? Because she adds her own little twisted element to this tragic scene. I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 26, And the king was exceedingly sorry. But not that sorry, right? But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And so what do we see within this portion of the passage, apart from this really disturbing party that Herod seems to be throwing along with all of his friends. We see Herod succumb to the desire for men's praise and granting the death of John the Baptist. This is undoubtedly an all-too-familiar temptation for each of us within this room, desiring the approval and the affirmation of others, even at the cost of one's own better judgment. Herod recognizes that he has gone too far, right? There's this recognition on behalf of Herod. He is exceedingly sorry that he has made such a a proclamation before the people, that he has made such a promise, But how does he respond? Well, his response displays for us what the ultimate desire of his heart is. What does Herod desire? Well, he desires the approval of people. He desires the approval of and the affirmation of those that are present with him. Why? Well, because he's sorry that he made the oath, but he's not going to step out and he's not going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I spoke out of turn, right? This was a bad decision. Like, I never should have said this. Why? Why would he not say that? Well, because that's going to totally change the way that all of those presidents see Herod. And so the question that you and I ought to be processing with our own hearts at this very moment is, what is it that most informs the way that we live our lives? What are we living for, right? What are we desiring? What is our heart's desire? Is it the approval of men? Is it the affirmation of this world? Or, as the followers of Christ, are we 
in light of the good news of the gospel, right, this extension of love, this display of grace that reconciles us unto the Father, are we desiring out of that and in the strength of the Spirit to live in obedience to the call of the Lord upon the lives of his people? What are we most interested in? What are we most concerned about? We obviously see that what we are interested in and what our heart desires will inform the way that we live our lives. And so how are we living our lives, right? That's the question. Like, how are we living as followers of of Christ? What's, What's present that ought not be and what's absent that ought to be interjected, right? That's the question that we are, that we are each asking ourselves, I hope, at this very moment. Not only do we see a guilty conscience and the call to repentance and a distorted desire, but we see implicitly within this passage a dangerous calling. The dangerous calling. What does it look like to follow after Jesus? Last week, again, we referenced this early on, but Mark is super intentional about the way that this, that this gospel is composed. Jesus calls the twelve to go out in his power and his authority and to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God, a precursor to the Great Commission. We see Jesus calling his followers to faith in the provision of the Lord. Don't take all of these things with you, we saw last week, but instead, go. Enter into the house that welcomes you. Don't try to like move on up like the Jeffersons, right? Like stay where you are, be content there, right? Trust in the provision and the sovereignty of the Lord. This is the call of Jesus as he sends his people out, to trust in the provision of the Lord. This flows directly into what we see here in Mark chapter uh, 6, our passage, our passage this morning. This is what the audience that Mark is writing to is processing. And then, this week, we see that John is beheaded as a result of proclaiming the same message that Jesus has just sent his disciples out to share. The message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 28, we see John's head brought on a platter and given to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Verse 29. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. There's this interesting compare and contrast that's going on between John and Herod throughout this, this passage. Because we see John in the face of power, earthly power, and persecution. Continue on in the proclamation of the word, calling out against sin and one to return to Christ. At the same time, we see Herod initially, uh, well, initially intrigued if we follow the order of the story. He's intrigued, um, and then he is sorrowful, and then he's like really paranoid if we go back to what we see in in verse 14. And so there's this contrast that's going on, right, between, between the wicked right? And the righteous. John was a man of great courage, right? A man who we would describe as having a a, a solid moral compass. Herod was not that, right? John loved the Lord and proclaimed his word faithfully and undoubtedly boldly. Herod did not. John denounced sin and called others to repent and embrace radical change. Herod brutally murdered an innocent man and a prophet. And so what can we say in light of what we see John experiencing in light of his obedience to the Lord here within this passage? Man, hey, to follow after Christ is a dangerous thing, okay? To to follow after Christ is a dangerous thing. Let us step outside of ourselves and consider the the condition, right, the experience of the global church this morning. For for you and I, the type of difficulty that we see John experiencing within this passage is foreign. But it's not for everybody, right? Right? Like we literally see news stories of, of, of Christ's followers 
right? Being, being taken to beaches and beheaded, right? And, and set on fire and drowned and persecuted and beaten. We don't live under the everyday concern that as we gather here on Sunday morning that this building might explode. We don't live under that. But some people do, right? Some people do. And so let us step back and let us understand that following after Christ is indeed a dangerous call. Comfort for the follower of Christ is not found in the assuredness of earthly gain. And get this, this is so important, okay? Uh, Comfort for the follower of Christ is not found in the assuredness of earthly gain or comfort, but instead in the assuredness of the abundant grace of the Lord. Right, that he that he keeps his people, right? That he sustains his people, that he works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Our confidence in this world flows directly from our understanding, right, of the character of God, which totally transforms the way that we live through difficulty in our day-to-day. Life. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which if you haven't read, I would strongly encourage you to do so. He says this, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to what? He bids him to come and to die. We now, as followers of Christ, say along with Paul as he writes his letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. Here's the reality, okay? This changes the way that we live our lives, okay? When we understand that we are not our own, but that we have been bought with a price, that we no longer live, but Christ is now residing to the power of the Spirit within His people, that changes the way that we live our lives. It changes the way that we embrace mission. It changes the way that we love people. It changes the things that we say, and it most certainly changes the things that we do. Lastly, not only do we see a a guilty conscience, a call to repentance, a distorted desire, and a dangerous calling, but we see in the gospel an eternal hope. Right? And in the light of all the evil and sorrow, there is a hope that dispels the sting of death. You see, the gospel speaks joy into the darkest of hours. There is news. Listen to this. Let this encourage our weary hearts this morning that there is news that transcends the sin and brokenness of this world. News that carries the persecuted people of God along. And it is the news of the resurrection of Christ. News that provides hope for the guilty and for the righteous. Hope for the guilty and that all sin breaches our relationship with God. But we must never think that the Lord will refuse those who humble themselves and return to him with true contrition, the willingness of the Father to forgive his children through the sacrifice of Jesus. Hear this this morning, because it changes the way we live mission, right? It changes the way that we, that we, that we grow internally. Our own sanctification is informed by what we see here The willingness of the Father to forgive his children through the sacrifice of Jesus 
is infinite. Right? No, no matter where we are or what we have done, we can be confident that God will indeed pardon us if we forsake our sin and turn to Christ alone for pardon. Pardon is found in the blood of Christ. The assuredness of that is found in the resurrection of Christ. That is the magnitude of the grace of God. That is the mercy of the God in whom we serve. We are resurrected in Christ. This is indeed the best possible news that one could imagine because it means that the condemnation that we deserve as law breakers, as covenant breakers, has been placed on Christ and that his sacrifice upon the cross is in fact sufficient. It assures us that God indeed works evil for good, that he can take the most horrible things that we can imagine and he can work them for his good and for his glory. We see hope not only for the guilty, but we see hope for the righteous and all of of the ways that we see Herod fall short of the righteous qualities of a king, we see Jesus fulfill them. What do you mean? Whereas Herod succumbs to the desires of the flesh, Christ does not. Whereas Herod desires the approval of men, Christ desires obedience to the will of the Father. Nowhere is this seen more clearly than Jesus' appearance before This very same Herod, as he stands trial prior to his crucifixion. I want us to look quickly at Luke's account. Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. I want to read this uh, for us. This is where we're going. We see where Herod is here in verse 14. He's losing his mind. He's really interested and concerned about the person of Jesus. He's super intrigued. He wants to meet him. We know that based on what we see later on. Well, he would get his chance. And whereas we see see Herod... (laughs) wilt, right, like a flower <laughs> here in, in this passage before, before those that are in attendance at his party, we see Christ stand boldly. Luke chapter 23, verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned, being Jesus, that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem, At the time, verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some signs done by him. Verse 9, so he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus refuses to speak to him. Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate, well, they became friends with each other on that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with one another. Okay, and so whereas we see at the party that Herod is throwing, we see this earthly king succumb to the pressure that exists all around him to meet the expectations of the people. This is indeed a man of his word, right? That he is powerful, that he can do as he says and he can do as he pleases. In contrast, we see Christ who stands there and and absorbs both the accusation of these wicked men speaking against his holy and righteous character, as well as the wrath of God upon the cross for the forgiveness of sins. It's incredible the contrast that we see on display through this passage. There is a hope. I read this quote this morning, actually, and I added it to my notes, and we're going to finish right here with these last few ideas. I think this was from uh, Emmanuel Church in Nashville, where Ray Orland is actually the pastor. And he said this, they said this this morning. There is hope because the gospel of Christ has the power to bring up every broken heart and heal every wound. That includes John's and that includes yours and mine. That's the power of the gospel. 
And so that's why this morning we yet again come and we celebrate the work of Christ, man. We celebrate the gospel. And so how do we respond to this news? A few things. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. See the holiness of God and your daily need for grace. And then consider the fact that you are here this morning. And that from God's word, we see yet again his commitment to the salvation of sinners as the call to repentance and faith in Jesus is proclaimed once again. And so repent and believe, man. Like repent and believe. Turn from your sin and turn back to Christ. Walk in boldness and trust in pursuit not of the approval of men, but the glory of Christ. And it's being made known in our city and in our world through our lives. Contend for the faith. Engage the culture with the hope of the resurrection and the power of the Spirit. And finally, trust. Trust in the sovereign power of Christ. Trust in the sufficiency of Christ, even in the difficulty of life, even through the loss of life. Let us trust again and again in the power and the sufficiency of Christ that we might indeed sing and say along with the old hymn that it is well, it is well with our souls. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning for the hope that we see proclaimed that even as our earthly lives are extinguished, that there is a hope that transcends the reach of this world. There, there is a hope that, is, uh, that it goes untainted, that cannot be stolen, that we may place all of our hope and all of our confidence on. And so this morning, convict our hearts that we might turn from the desires of the flesh, that we might gaze upon your glory and be brought to a position of adoration before you, that we might desire to live in light of who you are and what you have called us to, that we might daily enjoy the benefits of the resurrection of Jesus, knowing that it is through the sacrifice of the Son that we are welcomed into fellowship with you, that we might even now approach your throne in boldness and confidence, that our fellowship among one another is enriched by the presence of your Spirit as we continue to gather together around the goodness of your of your word. We pray that you would give us a heart that desires to live this type of life, that sees our lives as, as something that is to be poured out daily as an offering to you. We love you and we are grateful that it is through the sacrifice of the Son upon the cross and the resurrection from the dead in which we hope that even if our lives are taken, that it is not the end, but there is hope in the resurrection for us as well. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We're going to... Uh...